Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, featuring columnist and former YAF director Don Fetter. This podcast is recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. Don gave us 15 lessons for young conservatives and six guiding principles for a conservative foreign policy at this September 2014 breakfast. So get some hummus on your bagel and take a sip of your Turkish coffee because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. By the way, it's wonderful seeing Elizabeth here. We are old friends, and uh, she was one of the best volunteers I ever worked with. was always hoping she'd find a career in political work, and she did, thankfully. Um, you know, I was going to say something nice about the Leadership Institute. I've been involved with the Leadership Institute for years. I was, I think I've lectured at three of your schools, but I'm afraid that if I get into the topic, it'll take all of my time, because there's so much the Leadership Institute does that's so wonderful and so necessary to the conservative movement that I thought I would simply say that and stop. Sinjineer dies, and he goes to heaven, and he's met by an angel at the gates of heaven, and the angel has a big book, and he looks in the book, looks for the engineer's name, he can't find it. And he says to the engineer, I'm sorry, apparently you haven't led a good life. You can't come into heaven. The down escalator is over there. So the engineer goes to hell, and about a week later, God calls the devil, and he says to him, you know, there's been a clerical error. The engineer did live a good life. He belongs up here. I want you to send him back. The devil says, well, I'm sorry, but I can't. This guy is phenomenal. He's building super highways for us, shopping centers. There's a wet bar in my office. I'm not going to send him back to you. Well, God says, but you have to. The devil says, I'm not going to. And God says, well, listen, you better send him back here or else. The devil says, or else what? And God says, well, I may have to sue you. And the devil says, you're going to sue me. Where are you going to get a lawyer? By the way, I'm, I'm also a lawyer, among other things, so I'm, I guess I'm poking fun at myself. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this year, as I'm sure most of you know, marks the 50th anniversary of the Goldwater campaign, uh, the first uh, national political venture of a conservative movement. It also marks the 50th anniversary of uh, my involvement with the conservative movement. In 1964, I was the head of my high school chapter of Students for Goldwater. Uh, It was fun, but looking back, it was really a slaughter. I mean, this was 
the Polish cavalry versus panzers. Lyndon Johnson carried 44 states and 61% of the popular vote. One thing uh, the 64 campaign should have taught us is that it's not enough to hold the right views. You have to be able to articulate them without sounding like a cross between Vlad the Impaler and crazy Guggenheim. And I think that's one of the things Leadership Institute helps young conservatives to do. There was one bright spot in that campaign, and that was a late October speech called The Time for Choosing by an ex-actor who 16 years later became our greatest president of the 20th century. Although I didn't know it at the time, with Goldwater I had enlisted for life. As a college student, I started a chapter of Young Americans for Freedom uh, at Boston University. Uh, Young Americans for Freedom, or YAF, was then the largest and most active conservative group in the United States. It was committed to offering an alternative to academic leftism. Eventually, I helped to start YAF chapters at a dozen colleges and universities in Massachusetts. I became first state chairman, then New England regional director, and then a member of a national board of directors. In the 1960s, I encountered on campus a neo-Marxist movement called the New Left, which eventually became the most destructive force in American politics. Sixteen years after I graduated from Boston University Law School, a young man named Barack Hussein Obama entered Harvard Law. And of course, eventually, the left went from the streets to the pinnacles of political power in this country. In the mid-1970s, I joined a burgeoning anti-tax movement, becoming the first executive director of an organization called Citizens for Limited Taxation. In that capacity, I helped to defeat a graduated state income tax and worked on a property tax cutting initiative comparable to California's Proposition 13 called Prop Two and a Half. Thereafter, I spent two years in the West Coast as the executive director of the Second Amendment Foundation, fighting for a constitutional right that the left assured us didn't exist. In 1983, I became a columnist and editorial writer for the Boston Herald, a position that I held for 19 years. During that time, the paper published roughly 2,000 of my columns. Since then, I've been a freelance writer, a media consultant, communications director of the World Congress of Families. To recap, since 1964, I've been part of a Goldwater, campus conservative, anti-tax, gun owners' rights, and family values movements, while championing conservatism in the media. Otherwise, my life has been pretty boring. I'm not boasting. Others, probably others in this room, have contributed far more. But I've been around for a while, and I've learned a few things. I'd like to share with you some lessons I call them lessons for conservatives, particularly the young conservatives in the room. One, many who call themselves conservatives don't have a, even a vague understanding of what conservatism is all about. 
To talk to anyone under 40 at the annual conservative political action conference, CPAC, those annual orgies of self-congratulation and muddled thinking, and you're likely, I'm sorry, and you're likely to hear the following. I'm an economic conservative, as if conservatism was the bottom line on an accounting ledger. Or, I don't care about marriage, abortion, and stuff like that. That is to say, I'm a conservative who doesn't care about morality, the family, and protecting innocent human life. Ask them what they do believe, and the answer you're likely to get is freedom. I believe in freedom. We need to cut taxes and have a smaller government. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a pathetic form of reductionism that tries to distill over two centuries of conservative thought from Edmund Burke to Russell Kirk to government bad, Fortune 500 good. Two, our cause is faith, family, and freedom. We start with faith because liberty, morality, and human nature are God-given. Recall the Declaration of Independence, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Or Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, that this nation under God shall have a new birth in liberty, which of course is where we get the line in the Pledge of Allegiance that we said at the beginning of the program, one nation under God. The family because it's the foundation of social order and the cradle of civilization. Without the family, we become a society of isolated individuals moving at mock speed toward oblivion. Freedom, because it gives us a chance to make life's most important decisions. Three, unlike our president, we believe in American exceptionalism. We believe that America is unique in its contributions to freedom and prosperity, both at home and abroad. In the span of 237 years, excuse me, 238 years, the United States has been the workshop from which so many inventions and so much prosperity has flowed. Also a bulwark against tyranny and the workshop of representative government. Four, conservatives believe in language. Conservatives believe in borders. Conservatives believe in culture. Ronald Reagan warned us, and I quote, a nation that cannot control its borders is not a nation. For almost 400 years, America's history has been written and spoken in English. From the Mayflower Compact, to the latest law passed by Congress. It's the glue that holds our nation together. Previous generations of immigrants were expected to learn English as a matter of course, which is why this grandson of immigrants is able to address you today in our common tongue. By culture, I don't mean Italian opera or Renaissance art but movies, music, and other forms of popular culture. 
which conservatives would like to see reflect honor and decency rather than degeneracy and despair, which it so often does today. Five, conservatives believe in representative government, not democracy. The founding fathers disdained democracy, or as they called it, mobocracy, which is why the word is not to be found in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution any more than you'll find the word separation of state or separation of, of uh, church and state in the First Amendment. The Constitution speaks of securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. As America has become more of a democracy and less of a republic, we've become less free. The popular adage holds a democracy can only exist until the public discovers that it can vote itself largus from the public treasury. Any limitation on democracy, any limitation on the power of government is by nature anti-democratic. The Bill of Rights is anti-democratic. It restrains what the majority can do, which of course is why the left is forever telling us that our Constitution is outmoded. Six, and this is terribly important, conservatives aren't libertarians. Libertarians and conservatives both support the free market. That's where the similarity ends. Libertarians, or utopians of the right, believe in the separation of morality and government, as if this was even possible. A consistent libertarian must oppose laws against drugs, prostitution, child pornography, abortion, euthanasia, and even age of consent laws. But without a moral foundation, liberty becomes license. Our second president, one of the greatest men from my state of Massachusetts, John Adams explained, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The type of freedom libertarians advocate would lead to an unraveling of a social order which would eventually result in a new tyranny as the masses clamor to escape the chaos that libertarians have unleashed. Seven, conservatives aren't anti-government. We are anti-big government. We are anti-welfare state. But we understand the absolute necessity for government. I don't know who it was who said it, but it was well said. If men were angels, we wouldn't need government. But obviously they're not. Anarchy is not natural demand. Conservatives believe in constitutional government. An army, police, courts and other necessary agencies. Eight, private property and the free market lead to prosperity, and equally important are firewalls against tyranny. The genius of capitalism may be seen by comparing the economies of North and South Korea, East and West Germany before reunification, Costa Rica and Cuba, and the PRC, the People's Republic of California, and Texas. In the United States, generally states with lower taxes and less regulation, 
have more robust economies and better job growth. Private property and the free market also lead to a diffusion of power. One reason the concentration of power over the past century, which of course is accelerated under Obama, is so dangerous. The power to tax and regulate can easily lead to control over every aspect of existence, from how we raise our children to our speech and even our thoughts. The current administration has put the nation's health care in the hands of politicians and bureaucrats, literally giving government life and death power. Soon, we will all enjoy the same quality care that the Veterans Administration is known for. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. Nine, the most dangerous trend in America today is stifling dissent in the name of diversity. Hate crimes legislation, campus speech codes, and so-called human rights commissions all attack fundamental freedoms, including freedom of speech, and freedom of religion. The dogma behind these assaults on the First Amendment is that certain groups have a right not to be offended. And it's the job of government to make people nice. When speech can't be prohibited or punished outright, the left's fallback position is to stigmatize dissenters as hateful. By the way, the Human Rights Campaign and the Southern Poverty Law Center are particularly adept at this smear technique. Ladies and gentlemen, liberals support every form of diversity except the only one that ultimately matters, intellectual diversity. Ten, there is no conservative foreign policy. Isolationism and interventionism are false dichotomies. If the Founding Fathers were inveterate isolationists, why did Thomas Jefferson send the Marines to the shores of Tripoli early in the 19th century? Sometimes intervention in foreign conflicts is necessary, and sometimes the net result is building a better infrastructure for the Taliban or creating a Muslim mini-state in the Balkans. It's important to bear the following in mind. All intervention doesn't lead to a quagmire, and every foreign crisis isn't Munich. Here are a few guiding principles for a conservative foreign policy, assuming we ever have one. One, don't turn your military into an equal employment opportunity agency. They don't fight well. Two, don't make threats you're not prepared to carry out. When you draw a red line, you have to think about what you're going to do next when someone crosses it. Three, a thug with an ideology is far more dangerous than a thug without an ideology. 
Four, nation building is an exercise in futility. Five, support your friends, oppose your enemies, which is why a so-called even-handed approach to dealing with Israel and the Palestinians is so absurd. Six, and lastly, the world is a perilous place. It always has been. It always will be. Without a strong military and a willingness to use it when necessary, we will lose everything. Okay, back to my principles for conservative. Number 11, Islam is the principal external threat to America. Islam is as much an ideology as a religion. For most of its 1,300-year history, its goal has been conquest, a worldwide caliphate. In normative Islam, there can be no separation of mosque and state. Freedom of conscience, prized in the West, does not exist. It's no coincidence that today terrorism comes almost exclusively from the Muslim world. From Taliban to Iran, from Hamas to Hezbollah, from Al-Qaeda to ISIS. Catholic priests do not urge parishioners to behead critics of a church. Ministers don't preach holy war. Orthodox rabbis don't hijack planes and fly them into buildings. There are actually two Islams. There's the fairy tale version of Islam, sort of a theological version of the Arabian Nights, which exists in the imagination of Western apologists. And then there's the real world Islam, which both preaches and practices religious cleansing, genocide, and human rights violations on a massive scale. Number 12, leftism is the principal internal threat to America. Liberalism has morphed into a monstrosity which would have been unrecognizable to the liberals of old. Today, its drive for conformity by crushing dissent is relentless. It seeks to dominate every sphere of life and try to reshape human nature the age-old dream of totalitarians. Ladies and gentlemen, this is no longer a war of ideas. It's a struggle for the soul of our country. Number 13, the GOP is values neutral. Conservatism isn't. The conservative movement has principles. The Republican Party has positions which are transitory. Until the next opinion poll do us part. This year, the GOP, Congressional Republicans, the National Republican Party, has a truly inspiring message and agenda. We're not Obama. The grand old party seems incapable of learning. In 2012, Mitt Romney's message was jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Taxes, taxes, taxes. He clung to this tenaciously refusing to go off message, ignoring issues like Benghazi, the flood of illegal immigrants, and attacks on religious freedom. By the way, does anyone know when Mitt Romney lost the presidency? Foreign policy debate, when he brought up Benghazi and Obama, who'd been cued for this, 
by his handlers, said, those were my people. I was there when the coffins came back. Yes, Mr. President, and you put those bodies in the coffins. Instead of, in, instead of a comeback, Mitt Romney retreated. He'd been challenged. He looked weak. The one thing the American people will not tolerate is weakness. But Romney clung to jobs, 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 taxes, 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 and in the end, he lost, lost, lost. By the way, I remember Karl Rove on election night on Fox News saying that Romney, I think he said Romney was going to carry 30 states, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I forget what his projection was for the electoral votes, but people still listen to him. So my grandmother would say, go figure. Romney even lost 4 million Republican voters who were there in 2008, there for John McCain, by the way, who wasn't much of a Republican, but stayed home in 2012. Number 14, the Republican Party is all we have. A conservative third party, which would do more than collect protest votes, is an illusion. The last major party to emerge from the ashes of a party that died was the Republican Party of the 1850s, which was before the age of mass media and billion-dollar presidential campaign budgets. The conservative goal should be a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. We should enter the primaries full force to nominate the right candidates and take every opportunity to weaken the establishment's hold on the party. Fifteen, finally, the principal difference, ladies and gentlemen, the principal difference between conservatives and leftists, who go by the name liberals, is in economics. It's not foreign policy. It's not even social issues. The principal difference between the left and the right is a willingness to confront reality versus a dogmatic insistence on denying reality when it's inconvenient, as it almost always is for the left. This can be seen in debates over global warming, the minimum wage, abortion, immigration, the family, and even gun control. For all of our shortcomings, conservatives are the only political force interested in rational analysis and an open debate. Minds on the left are so tightly closed that they might as well be hermetically sealed. Their motto should be, don't bother me with the facts, it might interfere with my fantasies. We've come a long way from where I started 50 years ago, mostly in the wrong direction. In 1964, when I was a high school student, American culture was still relatively sane. Today, cultural Marxists make movies, report the news, control foundations, and run public schools and academia. To be a conservative today, ladies and gentlemen, is to be like Marshall Will Kane, Gary Cooper's character in High Noon, walking down the dusty streets of a nameless town toward a showdown he can't hope to win. Even though he's protected them for years, all of the town folks turn their backs on him. He's lonely, he's exhausted, He's discouraged, 
but he's determined to carry on. To be a conservative today is to be like Winston Churchill in 1937, warning of German rearmament, speaking to a near-empty House of Commons, ridiculed and reviled on every turn. To be a conservative today, an authentic conservative, is to be demonized and marginalized. And yet we must keep walking down the dusty streets of that nameless town. Because for civilization to survive, there is no alternative. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.